This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. So Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's you stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on I, the same I, side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are to each other. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. Yeah. It's like you know what. What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be blind sheep. We're supposed to be Bereans. And so just to, no matter who it's in, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Okay, welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. I'm really excited for back for the third time. We've got Tom Littleton back as our guest, and you know we've got him as um, an author for the upcoming book Social Injustice. So we'll talk about that, as well as some other stuff that's going on in the church and that whole thing. But welcome to back to the podcast, uh, Tom. And glad we could sit down and talk for the third time. Uh, yeah, me too, Jeff. Thanks. Always good to be with you. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and I know in the past we've covered, you know, everything from kind of Revoice to the Gospel Coalition to all that kind of stuff. Well, I know that, you know, within within the last couple of weeks there was the Southern Baptist Convention, and you had gone as a reporter again. And so, you know, how how did that go? Because I know last time there was, there was uh, some issues. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was interesting because I wasn't even sure that I was going to get uh, press credentials this time. Of course, you can walk up and go in unless they, you know, turn the security on you. It's, you know, it's it's an open event for the most part. But I did want to have the press credentials and get access to some of the, you know, what they were giving to the press, you know, members of the press and so forth. So I kept uh, asking about that, as well as trying to get some resolution from the executive committee about what happened last year, and I never did. Uh, there were three stories that emerged uh, from the ERLC and the executive committee the initial one that was in the Christian Post the day after I was removed from the building by the Dallas police, and um, and then two subsequent stories that were the product of executive committee investigations, and none of those were truthful, and none of them squared with what the police told me and what the Dallas police report said. So basically there's four stories now, mine, which is backed up by the police report, and then three stories from out of the belly of the SBC 
none of which, uh, uh, you know, are um, uh, in keeping with what the Dallas police who were asked to remove me themselves said. Yeah. Well, just just so pe- just so people know as well, like kind of kind of what we're refer- referring to about what happened last year was that you you know you had been asking the right questions. You've been um, you know you went as a credentialed reporter yet again, and and the thing that um, the the thing is is that like ultimately they had you removed by police force essentially. Um, and so when, when we're talking about this and the three different stories, like nobody's really come forward and really confirmed from the SBC and admitted this, this is why we made that decision is basically what this comes down to. Right. Right. And I did go ahead since it was clear that I wasn't going to get any satisfaction from the executive committee or the ERLC. I did say, well, I do want to come to the convention, you know, as a uh, as a member of the press. It's going to be in Birmingham, which is my home hometown. So mm-hmm. why not? You know, I want to be there, and I'm a Southern Baptist. So anyway, uh, I had to press really hard for months to actually get the credentials. It was a very last minute thing, but I went because uh, there was actually a resolution that was uh, I had helped uh, as a part of condemning uh, the Revoice movement, which is LGBT plus Christianity, and also another resolution submitted by a friend uh, about uh, the the 11th Commandment and uh, trying to protect whistleblowers within the SBC. So um, neither of those made it out of committee, but you didn't know, you know, the status of any of those or what other, uh, you know, things had been submitted until the last day of the convention, which was ironic. Uh, they usually publish those resolutions early on Tuesday, and in fact, they were not in the bulletin until Wednesday. And uh, here's this critical race theory uh, thing we can talk about in intersectionality, which was a big shock. And then this um, uh, the resolution on revoice was canned, and they the committee submitted its own. And then, of course, this whistleblower uh, resolution was completely uh, ignored. It was killed in committee. So uh, they had the egalitarian agenda in full swing, as reflected by the um, uh, several of the um, uh, resolutions. And um, you know, these just sort of set the order of business, as do the uh, discussions that they host on stage. One had to do with uh, racial reconciliation, which had a a lot of um, critical race theory in play, and even the talk of microaggressions <laughs> in, within the SBC. And then uh, one on uh, keeping secondary issues secondary, which uh, really translates into, look, if you disagree with me, uh, you just you have to give, you know, have charity and be civil and and uh, let me be a change agent in your denomination and don't say anything. <laughs> and and then, of course, the abuse issue, which they're trying to answer, supposedly the Houston Chronicle articles on uh, the sex abuse uh, that's been covered up and recently surfaced in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, well, let's, uh, you know, we'll quickly kind of run through some of these, but one of the things that I did want to, um, you know, kind of ask you about is dealing with this issue of, like, the secondary issues, I mean, what, I mean, what, what's their ultimate argument, but then also what's, what's the biblical perspective on this? Because I feel like what ends up happening is there, there are certain secondary issues where it's like, okay, we can agree to disagree, but it seems like 
they're making it more more widespread and covering more territory than maybe you and I would like. Right. Well, one of the issues that they did talk about was uh, Calvinism, which has been a historically a very divisive issue in recent decades within the SBC. But most people are kind of past that, and I think it's because they've realized that some of those within the Calvinist camp have been um, far more, um, you know, political than they have been theological. That's uh, the issue with TGC and their influence in the Southern Baptist Convention. But the, um, you know, they put a lot of issues uh, of, uh, of a political nature under these uh, secondary issues, but then they push the idea that Christians can find, um, you know, God, the gospel and the social justice causes of the uh, platform, say, of the Democratic Party, and that we should have charity to let, you know, Christians, you know, be convictional in their support of the Democratic Party. And, well, I think a lot of people really have problem with that because of one single issue mm-hmm. um, or a couple of issues. Uh, abortion being the big one, but then, of course, the Democratic Party's uh, anti-family policies or um, damage to religious freedom and some of that. Um, Clearly, social justice is not a reason that Christians could support a party that is, uh, you know, is working to destroy the family and redefine it. Uh, in effect, already have by redefining marriage, or that are supporting global uh, abortion. So, you know, to say those are secondary when they actually reflect a a lack of biblical convention uh, convictions on something so primary as the the value of life. Of course, they give lip service to these things, but then they want to say, well, you know, we should give room to. Um, allow for differences. And then the role of women, that was another thing in the, this uh, secondary issues. And uh, with a with an egalitarian movement um, afoot, uh, the role of women is, uh, is not a secondary issue uh, in the SBC right now. And they do have some historically defined parameters, but there's an active egalitarian movement uh, to empower women. And they even use that uh, phraseology, empowering women, and then, of course, uh, with intersectionality in place, um, uh, which is right out of the heart of the feminist movement. So what they're essentially saying is, well, don't confront those people who are, are pushing for change because uh, these issues are secondary and we can agree on the main things and, and agree to disagree on the rest. Yeah, I mean, you know, it just, that just, it's, that's just one of those things where – you know, I I get what they're saying when it comes to these secondary issues in the sense of like, okay, the main issue that we do need to get right is the gospel. So from that perspective, I com- I completely get what they're saying. However, that that's not like a license for us to disagree on anything and everything <laughs> that doesn't have direct impacts on the gospel. And I feel like that's that's part of the problem that we're having right here is that they're trying to make it seem like it as long as we agree on the gospel, nothing else really matters, which I don't even – clearly there's there's no biblical precedent for that at all. No, and, you know, Jesus was contentious. Uh, he was contentious with the Pharisees. He was contentious with, uh, you know, in his response to them. I mean, he didn't seek out the controversy most times except maybe a well-placed miracle on the Sabbath day to set them off. But these um, – you know, these issues are important, and, you know, and how they affect the gospel. Uh, social justice is a perversion of the gospel. So how can you say that 
um, you know, that allowing for social justice to be a core issue is not a gospel issue when it's being used to redefine the gospel. And I consider the way they go about this, particularly the way the convention is being run now. It was J.D. Greer, who's part of the Gospel Coalition and, and uh, in the power circles within uh, uh, Southeastern and Southern seminaries. Uh, he's the current president, so he moderated this um, this discussion in this panel and and all of the others from the stage. And essentially what, what they do is they bully the crowd with a lot of language that they have to agree with and then bring in all this tra- you know transitional and transformational language all this change agent language uh and and they're engaging um uh, you know the tools of sociology and psychology right there on the crowd as they're sitting there and uh and then they bully them into consensus by essentially saying well these are secondary issues and how can you you know be divisive over these issues and it's kind of like the, i grew up with two older brothers they get you really mad and then they put their hand on your head and hold you at arm's length and then tell you you know you're going to get in trouble if you uh you know if you start passing blows that's essentially what they're doing they're using their power with the platform and holding everybody at you know, beyond arm's length as they are provocative and work to with their change agenda. Yeah, I mean, it's it to me. It's just one of those things. It's it's nuts when you when you really start looking at this and you really start you know seeing the tactic the tactics that they're using too because it it just seems like there's so many parallels with what happens in the political realm and you know it happening in DC it seems to be happening like a lot of the same kind of strategies in order in order to get certain resolutions passed or certain things through um it's really weird that like this is how the quote unquote church is behaving to a certain degree now i, I kind of wanted to run into some of some of these you know issues now i know that you've got a lot of background when it comes to understanding everything around revoice and uh, homosexuality coming with coming into the church and that whole thing. Um, I believe that they, they actually had a resolution there at the SBC dealing with this. What was that resolution five? I believe it was. Yes. Yes. What actually happened? A friend of mine who attended, um, I met him at our God's voice conference in Oklahoma city where we put forth testimonies of people who've been completely transformed out of, LGBT, even people coming out of transgender back to their normal identity as God made them, people coming out of homosexuality, married. Uh, I mean, guys like Dennis Jernigan, who has 11 kids and an untold number of grandkids now, I I don't remember. Uh, But, uh, you know, he held up a picture of that, you know, on his PowerPoint of his family and said, this is what you know, what the devil tried to steal from me with homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the worship leader. We, I met a lot of people at that one. Uh, we, we, we gave a completely counter message with our conference to uh, Revoice. And so I met a couple of pastors in the area. We pulled together a um, resolution condemning Revoice and the idea of LGBT flourishing in historic uh, Christian churches. And uh, you know, because of the SBC ties, the Southern Baptist Seminary and the ERLC ties to Revoice, it was pertinent that we get the convention to speak to this and condemn it. Well, the committee receives these things in advance, 
these resolutions that are submitted by concerned Southern Baptists. And I don't even think you have to be a messenger, you know, to submit a resolution, but, and you don't have to come to the, uh, to the uh, convention meetings, but, you know, this goes into the committee, you have to meet the protocols, and then you don't find out until the convention the status of that. Well, we found out that our revoice um, condemnation was rejected, and instead the resolution committee themselves uh, took on the issue of um, uh, same-sex attraction, and they affirmed what really is an orientation narrative but they did condemn the idea of gay Christian uh, identity or sexual minority identity. Those were just two of the parts of Revoice that were most uh, controversial, these identities. But in reality, they sort of broad-brushed over the real issue, which is that the Revoice came out of the heart of our flagship seminary and has support of our ethics department. I just recently did an article exposing even two more guys in the um, ERLC who, who are involved in, uh, uh, you know, work with uh, some of the Revoice leaders. So that makes uh, four huge connections to the ethics department of the Southern Baptist uh, immediately to people who are in leadership of Revoice. So they're ignoring and burying the real concern, and then they affirmed what was essentially the message that led to Revoice, which is same-sex attracted orientation instead of it being a temptation. We sought to alter their uh, um, uh, resolution through an amendment to change the wording same-sex attracted to same-sex temptation, which would keep it in a biblical language and offer biblical resolution to the problem of being attracted to the same sex if we understand it as temptation instead of orientation, but they rejected that amendment and kept it the way they wrote it. Yeah, and, and you know, it went, I remember when I, was, when I was reading through that resolution, one of the things that they were talking about was making sure that, you know, we as the church are loving our brothers and sisters that are, that are struggling with, you know, same-sex orientation, and their, again, their words, attraction, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think, I think one of the... One of the things that we are kind of concerned with, with looking at that is, yes, we should be loving people, but if it's a sin and it's a temptation, it's something that needs to be dealt with. It's not something that we just accept as unrepentant sin, and that's perfectly fine and perfectly okay. So it seems like, again, they're kind of redefining the word love to me to be a lot more inclusive within the church, especially theologically, which seems like a change to a certain degree, wouldn't you think? Yeah, uh, the language of this uh, resolution uh, ended with the pastoral response that they were um, uh, that they were driving was hospitality, and hospitality is an inclusive uh, narrative. It's being used by Alberry and by Revoice and by Rosaria Butterfield and the assortment of people that they brought into the conversation, all of who have backgrounds in um, in. Uh, uh, feminine gender and uh, queer theory, and so this idea that the church needs to be hospitable really uh, gives a welcome uh, mat uh, approach to the LGBT at a time that the activism over this uh, lifestyle and agenda is at a fever pitch, and the church is the main obstacle that they have in achieving, you know, their ultimate goals. So, if they're welcome into the church, like we saw with Sam Alberry's. Um, uh, church audit, 
that came out last year around the same time, and then the Revoice narrative, they're not only wanting welcome into church membership, they're wanting places in ordination, you know, uh, and uh, to ministry within the church as long as they say that they are celibate or as it was the wording 30 years ago, non-practicing. This is all segue incrementalism, segue language, transitional language. And they also echo the idea that those who experience same-sex attraction in this resolution, that they are paying costly obedience, that they're bearing a heavier cross than we are, than heterosexuals are, uh, to obey the gospel. And that's simply not true, especially if you put it in light of temptation, which is the biblical narrative, instead of attraction and orientation. Uh, and they really don't give any uh, any um, opportunity that persons overcome same-sex attraction because the narrative of orientation is that that doesn't change. And uh, so all this puts the church sort of back on its heels with language that's new and strange and familiar and then allows this uh, agenda of change to continue. Yeah, you know, and the, th the thing that I, I always want to clarify when it comes to when it comes to these kinds of issues is that, yes, we as believers, we should be loving and caring to people that are struggling with homosexuality. Like, we, we shouldn't be bullying people. We shouldn't be intimidating people along those lines. Um, but the key is that we still have to be firm in our theology and in our defining our terms and in what is sin and what is not sin. That doesn't mean that we have to be mean to people, which I think, which I think would be the accurate definition of being loving to people and, and caring about people. But at the same time, it's not loving to, to somebody to say that, well, you're stuck with this and you can't do anything about it. When in reality, that this is the whole point of the gospel. We repent of our sins, place, place our faith in Christ and we follow after him. And so even this whole thing with over revoice and, you know, gay Christianity, it's compromising the gospel. And it's like these guys just don't even get it, or do they? I think they do. It's just that uh, their outcome is going to be, you know, more obvious down the road. But we should see that uh, with them being willing to use, you know, the social sciences and theories of social change on the church, that they have an end goal in mind. Russell Moore, who heads the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission for the SBC, he's been on this set of talking points from the day he first did his uh, um, press release initially in 2013 saying, hey, the culture war is over, we lost, let's just love our gay and lesbian neighbors. Well, saying even the idea of a culture war being waged by evangelical Christians or Trump voters or whatever – comes right out of the Frankfurt School and, and some of its American affiliates who are very influential within these evangelical leaders' lives and circles. So uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture is one of them who openly, uh, uh, that's where the whole term culture wars came from, from its founder. And so the idea, well, you Christians who are against all this stuff, you're turning people off, you're waging a culture war. Well, it, the fact is, we're having a culture war waged upon us, and we're responding. And so then they're telling us that our response is, in fact, us waging the war. So it's quite a twist and wordplay you know, on their part to put it back on our heads for responding to the agenda of change. But uh, they agreed to engage these kind of things that are extra-biblical, 
and we see in the critical race theory um, narrative that that is um, uh, clearly something that uh, they're willing to use on the church, and unfortunately it has a um, problematic um, uh, indication that even they would be willing to engage it, much less have the desire of using it for those outcomes. Yeah, which which kind of leads us into Resolution 9, which I know has been the thing that most people have been talking about as being the main compromise that happened at the SBC. Um, now, can you kind of explain, like, what is Resolution 9 and what what really is the problem with it? Well, the title of it is On Critical Theory and Intersectionality. It opens up with the assortment of uh, whereases which uh, basically admit that this has become uh, a point of discussion and controversy that uh, critical race theory and intersectionality is in play within the uh, Southern Baptist uh, conversations. Uh, What uh, people really don't realize is that it's actually being taught at our seminaries, and that's really where the social justice stuff is most obviously uh, you know, uh, permeating uh, the institutions where we're training our future pastors and missionaries. But the one of the things they said essentially is that, you know, critical race theory uh, is, uh, you know, is an analytical tool uh, and that it can explain how race uh, continues to function in society and inter- intersectionality to study the difference of these personal characteristics of how they overlap and one person's inform one person's experience and that's the kind of language that they're using their conclusion really is that critical race theory uh, and intersectionality without them being used through the lens of scripture is problematic that that would be a misuse but they don't condemn the use of them or expose the existence of these uh, uh, political and legal theories that uh, come straight out of the camp of left-wing uh, progressive politics and Frankfurt School stuff. Uh, they've come out of liberal seminaries like Columbia and or liberal universities. These guys actually put a stamp of approval on the use of critical race theory and intersectionality as long as it was through the lens of Scripture and that people were saying that the Scripture is is uh is is still primary well this is one of the you want know, one of the enemy's oldest tricks i mean the devil tried to twist the word of god to the living word of god himself when he tempted him in the wilderness so what's what's the point of that if we are living with um the reality these things are in our midst but in fact we're willing to say well as long as we douse them with scripture it's going to be okay and that was really the outcome of this Resolution 9. It went through. They said it was approved almost unanimously, but many messengers on the floor who voted for this simply relied upon the wisdom and, and um, uh, insight of the, the people on the platform, and they ignored efforts to amend it or to kill the resolution, and it received almost unanimous approval. Many people have buyer's remorse on this now that the more articles are coming out about it and they've started to realize what critical race theory and intersectionality really are and uh, what their origins are. Yeah, which which seems really weird to me about this whole fight over social justice and intersectionality and that whole thing is that a lot of these guys that are really making decisions and making statements and talking about it, it just seems like they don't 
even know fully what it is, um, which again, it's like, so why, why are we voting on something that we don't really know about, <laughs> you know? Right. So, you know, for people, for people that maybe this is their first time where they're hearing about this or they've heard the term, but they don't really understand the definition. Like when we're talking about critical race theory, we're talking about intersectionality. What exactly are we referring to? Well, the idea of critical race theory is that institutionalized racism exists within the frameworks of society and that individual racism doesn't even really have to be proven to exist, but the presumption, like, say, that uh, white supremacy exists or white privilege simply because a person is white uh, and that those attitudes then affect a person who is of of minority status or a person of color and they, um, uh, because they're part of the institution that is oppressive, and so it becomes a, just, a justice issue. And these things translate into all kinds of, of justice issues like economic justice, and that's really kind of the end game because we already see in the SBC the talk of reparations uh, toward uh, racial minorities, and um, uh, yet we see, you know, major leaders within the SBC kind of play in both sides of this, like uh, Al Mohler did. He tried to purge supposedly Southern Seminary of its racial history that dates back to the slave days. Uh, he exposes some of the more um, rotten apples in their history, but then turns around and hides the fact that he sits on the endowed chair of one of those uh, big racists uh, that uh, still bears the name of the former governor of uh, of Georgia, but uh, he never connects that racial heritage to himself and whatever um, salary he gets as part of that endowed chair. So they're they're playing it on the people in their ignorance within the SBC, and yet uh, critical race theory doesn't have any kind of biblical basis in which uh, I mean it, it's the, it's the same kind of propaganda the, to say that. Um, that uh, abortion is a form of uh, of um, you know of um, being, you know Planned Parenthood strategy. I mean, critical race theory is a way to dismantle uh, people's rights, not protect them. And it's the same way when we say that we can use abortion as birth control, I and mean, that's what um, what Planned Parenthood would have us to do. And ironically, liberals get away with this stuff all the time. Uh, using Planned Parenthood again, um, uh, you know, manipulating these ideologies, uh, they're able to target uh, minority people with their abortion clinics located in minority neighborhoods and yet say this is family planning and we're trying to help, you know, uh, people uh, of uh, minority status. But the idea that we can bring about uh, justice and equality, economic equality, um, is is absurd uh, to you know through uh, liberal politics, progressive politics, and it becomes even more absurd that the idea that now the Southern Baptists are saying these are gospel issues. Intersectionality comes from kind of the overlapping of uh, out of feminine theory that you can overlap these um, these um, status of of minority and basically where they all intersect to say a person would have a triple protection uh, under this approach or be tri- a, a triple victim if they were a person of color and a woman uh, and, and homosexual 
or lesbians. So you you think about that, um, then you know the, these are the kind of people who the narrative is going to favor, and against those who are by virtue of the color of their skin part of this institutionalized racism and discrimination against them. Yeah, which again, this is this is one of those things where traditionally I feel like you know, the Southern Baptist and just evangelical community in general has typically been more on the conservative side. But it just seems like they're just parroting the talking points from like people like AOC and Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, is is that has this been like something that's been a long time coming? Or is this something that is new because it seems like people are finally starting to wake up to this? Well, it's new on the surface, but it's been uh, permeating the seminaries for a while. That was part of what I exposed in the Evangelical Deep State articles in 2017, which was the origins of much of this uh, social justice uh, gospel is a curriculum that was uh, brought into um, the seminaries, uh, 23 seminaries, um, uh, uh, and initially, and then uh, it's it's spread to far more now. So tens of millions of dollars from uh, a funder called the Kern Family Foundation, and there are others behind that. But uh, they have driven this narrative through the curriculum at the seminaries for uh, for years, but especially the last five to six years. And so now it's actually come to the surface. And so this is why your pastor, if he's uh, 30 years old and fresh out of one of the seminaries like Southeastern or Southern, uh, they're going to be uh, sounding like social justice warriors. They're going to confuse all these issues, and they're going to be talking about um, diversity and intersectionality and inclusion. And you know what they mean by this is uh, probably something very different from what you mean, if you even understand those terms uh, from a biblical perspective. They mean them from the very classic uh, um, uh, social theories that they've been taught in the seminaries. Yeah, it, it, it's it to me. It's it's just it's it's crazy how how all of this has been coming to a head, and you know to a certain degree, it's, it's really been you know like you were saying, it's been on the surface you know pretty recently, but it seems like it's been pretty hardcore since Donald Trump became president which seems really weird that something that happened on a, the political side of things would have these kinds of ramifications within the church. But it seems like just like there's a lot of blowback going on in, in the secular political media world, the same blowback's happening within the church, which again is really weird that a president could, could really affect a denomination to this degree. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the reasons that is the case is because ultimately – this is a political um, uh, agenda that's being carried on by those who are driving uh, race theory and driving the social change within the church, because what they're really after is to uh, steadily blunt the sword of, of conservative uh, political views and power exercised by the evangelical uh, church. And Christians have been very reliable as a a contender for influence uh, within uh, political circles. And uh, the Christian right, as they like to call it, is considered really the big villain, and that people who voted for Donald Trump, uh, even still the uh, prior to his election, the never-Trumpers like Russell Moore and 
and uh, a bunch of the TGC guys. Um, then they became uh, the big shamers. You know, they had to shame Christians for the last two years for supporting Trump. So Trump's election actually uh, threatened a lot of the uh, progress that they saw themselves having made as progressive Christians uh, in during the Obama years and bringing Christians into this communitarian social justice model was really being furthered by Obama and by his funding, almost unlimited funding, that was going into the faith-based partnerships, which, by the way, the SBC uh, entities like their um, uh, missions programs, both domestic and international, are benefiting from the concept of and money related to faith-based partnerships. Uh, North American Mission Board is working huge with FEMA. Uh, they're one of the go-to partners with the federal government in the rebuild of uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. There's, I think, $98 billion that have been dedicated to the rebuild. So I can see where um, an organization that has uh, some progressive leaders would see that as a, a juicy opportunity and not have a lot of conviction that would prohibit them from those kind of partnerships. And the the thing is, meanwhile, the church is steadily being transformed into its, you know, within, from within, and its vision of what is the gospel and what's a gospel mandate and what is, you know, basically a progressive political agenda. Uh, we're not distinguishing between the two, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's again, it's one of those things where it's it's nuts to me how how progressive we've gotten so quickly within the church where just, I feel like just a few years ago, it was unheard of to be, to consider yourself like a liberal or progressive Christian. And then now it's almost unheard of to call yourself a true conservative Christian. And it just seems like everything is just a hundred percent flipped. And I feel like to a certain degree too, there's some of the people that are quote unquote credible, like guys like Al Mohler and people that have been on the scene for quite a long time. And they, it's like, they want to kind of play both sides of the fence to a certain degree where on one hand they're, they're trying to still be considered the conservatives, but then on the other hand, they're endorsing and um, allowing guys like Russell Moore to kind of run completely amok on the, on the left side of things. So, you know, at what point, do we do is the is the SBC going to break apart? At what point is can the SBC be fixed? Like what what do you think the solution is here when it comes to a denomination of this magnitude? Well, uh, to quickly to tell you how this stuff is working, you know the resolutions committee. If you look on Baptist Press, you can bring up the 2019 resolutions committee. That committee was was. Uh, you know, was stacked. They had uh, one of Al Mohler's guys, uh, Curtis Woods, who is part of the quote-unquote removing the stain of racism from the SBC. And that's a book and a movement. Uh, it was featured on the cooperative program stage in Dallas last year, and they openly talked about critical race theory in a positive light. Well, see, that was a year before this resolution came out, and by the time it does, uh, uh, Curtis Wood is on the resolution committee as the chair. Uh, another guy uh, from Southeastern, which is Danny Aiken's seminary, um, he uh, Walter Strickland, he just recently raised a lot of eyebrows by admitting that he preaches uh, and teaches James Cone and Black Liberation Theology in uh, at Southern, Southeastern Seminary. You got guys like Trevin Wax, 
who is um, uh, Ed Stetzer, a, a desperate progressive <laughs> in the SBC. Uh, Trevin Wax is his protege. He's on the executive committee. And even uh, this is a big indicator with the faith-based outreach stuff. Uh, a guy uh, from um, uh, from the SBC president, uh, J.D. Greer's church, uh, who is com- pastor of community development at Summit Church in Raleigh, is on the executive committee. So that's what the church is really getting into is community development and uh, uh, distribution of social services and social goods. That's why they're driving social justice gospel, really just the Rauschenbusch gospel to back this stuff up with a little bit of Baptist language. The problem with guys like Al Mohler is they know there's a controversy because they're helping drive this undercurrent. And once it's come to the surface, uh, he's a, a very political figure. He knows how to play the talking points. He can just strike, uh, you know, his theological sword at this in his daily briefing, but then he doesn't do anything to stop it or to correct it or to oppose it. And in fact, it is people like Russell Moore, who is his 24-year protege, who are driving it. So. Uh, I think a, a lot of times people don't want to face the facts that guys like Al Mohler, who's in the Gospel Coalition as well, uh, trained Nate Collins, who is the for 15 years, who is the head of Revoice, that uh, these things we're seeing actually are coming right out of these guys in the leadership, no matter what they tell us theologically. Uh, what they're doing speaks louder than their words. Yeah, that, that's very true. Now, now the two resolution the two resolutions that I'm most familiar with are five and nine. Was there anything else that was being posed that is questionable or you know just concerning? <laughs> well, there's I think resolution twelve is uh, talking about political engagement, which really that goes back to what we discussed about the saying that's a secondary issue that we should be able to have Baptist brothers who are supporting the Democratic Party because of its. Uh, it's biblical views on justice, uh, and uh, that's all part of that narrative. And what they're really doing is pushing a third-way politics, a mushy middle, and to ultimately pull conservatives out of that uh, hard right-wing conservatism as they view it and completely alter the landscape, the political landscape, and the voting practices of um, of uh, conservative Christians. That's what they're after, and they're not aiming at you and I. They're aiming at the younger minds in the, you know, the colleges and the seminaries. Uh, that was one resolution. Didn't get a lot of notice, uh, but it has a narrative that obviously people don't want to be divisive over politics, so they voted it in. And there were multiple resolutions about women uh, and abuse issues and women's role in in, uh, in ministry. Uh, valuing women in ministry. That was even one of the panel discussions. So uh, there is an egalitarian movement afoot. That's where intersectionality comes into play, where women are also suffering abuse at the hands of these sort of institutionalized um, uh, abusers and uh, that protect one another. And the problem with that is the real abuse that uh, surfaced had far more cases of uh, child sex abuse in the SBC that were covered up, and they're not really addressing whether or not these people are who covered the, up these uh, issues are are being addressed or prosecuted or, or exposed themselves. So there is institutionalized problems in the SBC, but then they they use those problems like this Houston Chronicle expose 
months ago about the sex abuse, they use it to drive this egalitarian and empowerment narrative. So the resolutions reflect that. They also took the Credentials Committee, uh, which handled credentialing messengers into the uh, into the convention meetings annually, and they they moved that committee into a, a separate status and used the existing. Uh, um, um, uh, I forget the word, uh, but basically in their bylaws and constitution, that that existing committee was then repurposed to uh, provide for a standing credentials committee, which now is uh, a sort of a Gestapo court for um, these and tribunal for uh, offenders. Uh, who are covering up abuse as they define it. And uh, actually, Curtis Wood, who's head of the Resolutions Committee, uh, tweeted out about that. He works with the Kentucky Baptist Association. He said that this standing Resolutions Committee could strip churches of their credentials as Southern Baptists if they were not uh, walking basically in step with this, um, uh, with the current SBC leadership and this um, standing committee's determinations, not only on the issue of uh, sex abuse, but on the issues of race and and LGBT or homosexuality. So, if they're um, uh, if they are going to show their teeth on this, it's going to be through this uh, this uh, standing. Um, credentials committee, which they've now turned into and repurposed into uh, uh, a very hierarchical uh, ecclesiastical entity empowered to strip churches of their individual credentials as Southern Baptists. And that's totally new. This is not, this is more like Presbyterian polity. That's not uh, Southern Baptist polity in the least, but uh, now it is. Right. Which, you know, again, when it comes to, you know, like abu- these abuse things that have been coming out in the church, you know, and you mentioned the Houston Chronicle article and, you know, I've followed, you know, several other, you know, bloggers that, that expose a lot of this abuse and, and that sort of thing. The, the common theme that I'm seeing is that what's happening is the people that are on the more progressive side of, you know, let's just say Christianity in general or the evangelical movement. Uh, what they're doing is they are taking these abuse the the abuse by certain pastors and you know men in general, and they're trying to use it as a way to maneuver to allow women to become pastors and women to become in leadership, as if those are directly correlated. Which you know it, it, that doesn't even make logical sense. Um, and so it's important that we that we are going back to God's word on things. Like just because there's abuse that's happening, and I don't want to belittle it at all. It's it's extremely serious, and I think that the church is failing a lot of times in how to deal with it. But we can't go so far the other way as to act like this now justifies establishing Beth Moore as uh, a pastor or you know should be preaching from the pulpit. And and it's like we have to be careful about these kinds of issues that we're not having the result be something that isn't the solution to the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's obvious they deferred uh, the decision about whether, even though they're saying a woman can't be a pastor in the SBC, they deferred the decision to Orlando 2020 uh, SBC meetings to determine if a woman can, in fact, be president of the SBC. I was told um, a year and a half ago that the powers that be were going to be pushing Beth Moore up for president after Greer had his two terms, which he's just been elected to the second term. That's customary. They usually are not opposed in that second term. So the problem then is um, where um, 
you know, where this is going would be, you know, you know, obviously an effort to empower women into leadership. And Beth Moore, uh, to my understanding, has some Baptist ties historically, but is not in a Baptist church right now. So, and she's certainly not a pastor. And that's where uh, they've drawn the, um, uh, you know, opportunities among male pastors within the SBC for leadership of this, you know, of the convention. So it would be uh, a major departure, not only from Baptist history, but from their commitment to the Scripture and to a community, uh, a um, uh, complementarian view of women's roles in the church. You know, and Paul said he would not allow a woman to teach. You know, but that they should, they could mentor women, and that they could, um, you know, help, uh, run their home. And yet, the Bible does not dishonor women at all i mean the proverbs 31 woman i was raised by one of those you know she's quite an accomplished person uh my wife is a very accomplished woman but uh, my wife's also latin she enjoys being a woman and uh, i don't think she has a feminist bone in her body but uh feminism is a totally different animal and that's really what we're seeing rise up supposedly as an answer to stopping abuse and and in this case, you know, it's institutionalized abuse, just like the narrative of critical race theory. Every man is guilty because he's a man. And uh, every institution that sees men as as God's ordained uh, pastoral leadership, uh, um, you know, uh, it would be uh, prejudice against women and, uh, and, uh, the, and discriminate against them in gender and would ultimately be abusers. So this kind of stuff is most disturbing because we know from progressive political history that those whose whose um uh whose minority status and victim narratives are used and weaponized are never served with justice in the end of this it's always serving the political ends of those who really are driving it and so the southern baptists have moved into that seedy realm where they're letting uh, the politics drive these issues and even do it on the back of actual victims of people who've been abused and big people who are uh, certainly being discriminated against uh, in some cases uh, are just being brought into this big tent to uh, be herded together, you know, as part of uh, the weaponization and the uh, ultimate achieving of the goals. It's not godly, and it's certainly not gospel. Yeah, that that that's very true. And so, you know, I, I kind of wanted to uh, switch over a little bit to discussing um, your chapter in our upcoming book, Social Injustice, which where you know you're tackling the topic of you know the LGBTQ movement within Christianity, which there's a lot of crossover between what we've been talking about and you know what you wrote about in the chapter. Um, and then you came out with an excerpt of the chapter uh, in the article, uh, you know, will the real Sam Albury please stand up? Um, what what's what is the issue when it comes to somebody like Sam Albury? Because he's really been brought into mainstream Christianity by organizations like the Gospel Coalition and established by a lot of really credible people. Um, so when it comes to somebody like him, what's, what's the main concern with Sam, with Sam Albury and where is the compromise that, that you are concerned about? Yeah, well, to, to start at the end and move back, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, Sam is a change agent 
and uh, he would probably own that uh, title if you, um, you know, if he, in an unguarded moment, I, I, he certainly wouldn't if I ask him. But uh, they're out to change the narrative within the um, conservative Christian church about LGBT and same-sex attraction. Uh, the main problem is that the entire argument is based on the same premise as Revoice, and that is uh, sexual orientation, that it is real and proven and fixed. It does not change. So once you're gay, you're always gay. It's kind of the AA for gays. You know, once you're an alcoholic, you're you're always an alcoholic. We know that's not true when it comes to the gospel, that we are partakers of Christ's nature and made new creatures in Christ. And that's the hope of the gospel. But um, Sam Alberry was actually brought to the Southern Baptist conversation in 2014 by the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission when Al Mohler and Russell Moore had this conference called uh, the Gospel, Homosexuality, and the Future of Marriage. And then his book had just been published is God Anti-Gay. And then uh, his site, Living Out, which has drawn some recent um, uh, attention, uh, it was already out in 2013. Um, it's interesting, some Southern Baptists like Tom Buck and some of the guys who uh, helped draft the Dallas Statement uh, were suddenly finding issue with living out and some of the articles on it that where they talk about gay Christianity and talk about, um, uh, you know, things that are clearly antithetical to the gospel understanding of human sexuality and gender and even some advice toward teens and the admission that their website was uh, and living out was aimed toward teenagers, a lot of mixed messages there. Well, these things have been around for six years, and uh, Alberry admitted that when he was later interviewed by one of the uh, ERLC uh, and um, Nine Marks guys, TGC guy, um, in their Midwestern uh, Gospel Coalition meetings, Jonathan Lehman, uh, who's also a Nine Marks editor, kind of gives Sam Alberry a chance to explain uh, his position on these living out articles. But we're talking about old news. I mean, what if we went back and started talking about something that uh, Obama was doing um, that maybe had deeper revelations? Well, it's kind of old news now because that agenda's already accomplished its purpose and we're actually moved on to another administration. But the reality is uh, nothing has been called into question about Sam Albury, uh, even his origins in the movement uh, to um, get the Church of England, of which he is an ordained minister and a pastor and a, and a, a part of uh, the Church of England uh, had to move the church toward accepting gay marriage because essentially the Church of England is a state-run church. Once Parliament had made it the law of the land in 2013, going to be implemented in 2014, you see the timeline, then Alberry comes forward and living out is formed as, quote-unquote, a conservative response to uh, to the redefining of marriage. The problem is it's a conservative response in name only because it, it, is, it comes left of center with the idea that sexual orientation is fixed and does not change. So you've completely dis, uh, disassembled the biblical narrative uh, and, and within the minds of those who are listening and taken it left of center and completely outside the bounds and authority of Scripture. Even Al Mohler admits that in 2005, but by 2014, 14 and 15, he's confessing that we were wrong about uh, orientation, that he was wrong about orientation, that sexual orientation or something like it is real. Uh, and so the whole narrative has been built around orientation. Right now, the 
the splitting hairs uh, point is over whether sexual orientation means you have a sexual identity, which would mean a gay identity or an LGBT identity. Uh, and for those who are professing to be Christians, a gay Christian identity, an LGBT Christian identity. So they're really just splitting hairs, but the argument never goes back to a, found, a sound biblical foundation because it was Albury's job in the first place to move it left of center and off of that biblical foundation. And it doesn't matter how many scriptures you throw at it or how eloquently you profess it you know, and express it, they're actually taking us uh, completely off of a biblical foundation, off a biblical narrative, outside the bounds of scripture, and we're living in this mushy middle, which is ultimately going to collapse into the, into the left. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, is that even the guys in the Dallas statement that that wrote it and were involved with that, um, you know, that was supposed to be that line in the sand of okay, we're going to define our terms, we're gonna we're gonna deal with this issue of social justice. But it seems like even they've been somewhat either compromising or undermining the position, you know, our position on social justice by being at least friendly and somewhat endorsing even of guys like Sam Albury. You know, I, I, I remember was, I believe it was Tom Buck that actually had a conversation with Sam Albury and then he comes out afterwards and affirms him as a, you know, great brother in Christ. And, you know, it's just kind of like, but we're, we're, nothing's been resolved. <laughs> right. Well, in private conversation, um, then, um, Tom Buck was telling people that Sam Albury lied to him. And uh, then when it came out, uh, even before anything was resolved or removed from Living Outside uh, website, uh, then everything's okay, and Sam's a great brother and a great value to the kingdom. Uh, and so these guys are blinking, you know, when it comes down to the staring contest about, you know, what what's a threat to the gospel and what isn't. But I can tell you there's nothing that provides a bigger threat to religious freedom, freedom of speech, um, Christian conviction, the ability to preach the gospel, to minister the gospel, especially to people who are wanting out of homosexuality. There's nothing that provides a bigger threat than accepting orientation, uh, vilifying and criminalizing ex-gay ministry and counseling, and then, of course, redefining family, because that's what we're seeing already with Albury. And by October of last year, Albury and Russell Moore were saying that the church is your family, and uh, which is very cult-like, and it's based on feminine theology of um, uh, Drew uh, School of Theology theology, excuse me, uh, Janet Fishburn back in the 90s developed this narrative that, you know, the family was an idol, the nuclear family is an idol, and that you should replace your uh, idea of family with your church community. And so this is vintage feminist theology, feminine uh, and gender theory at work. And of course, now we see them actually admitting and owning intersectionality, which is all part of those narratives colliding and collaborating and big tenting, you know, their cause. But um, in fact, um, there's nothing that is a bigger threat to what's going on in the church right now than to turn a blind eye or to refuse to name names or call these people out or really draw the line in the sand. Because you draw the line and then the bully steps over it, then you draw another line, a bully steps over it, and then you draw another line. You know, where, where's that going? You know, you're going to get beat up. You know, and yeah. or you're going to turn tail and run, 
And, uh, you know, we've, we've all seen this all play out before. And uh, in reality, if the whole church were just saying, no, this is not the gospel, we're not going to go this direction, then uh, we would be healthy, and we're not. And what we just saw in uh, California with the idea of uh, justice um, being served through um, the, um, uh, the chaplain of Azusa Pacific University saying that uh, uh, and supporting a, a bill that, uh, that pastors and Christians and Christian counselors should comply with this uh, new set of rules on LGBT, we're about to see uh, Christian ministry become um, illegal and criminalized uh, in the case of ministering to the homosexual community. And if that happens in California, then they will have a very successful template for uh, gay straight alliance, gay uh, um, and lesbian uh, education network and human rights campaign and all these other organizations uh, glad to take that template and apply it all over the country. And, and I can tell you those local efforts are far more at the state, county, and city level are far more effective right now than even what's happening on the national level with the Equality Act. This is taking place all over the country, and once the teeth come out in this, it's going to be brutal for Christians. It's going to be persecution for those who stand firm on the gospel. Yeah, you know, and it, and it just it seems to me that... A lot, a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the church is really coming back to there's like uh, in a, there's an illiterate congregation or because I think what's happened is a lot of pastors have kind of stunted the growth of their congregations by not actually getting in and preaching the word in a way that's actually training and educating. Instead, what we're seeing is a lot of sermons that are like kind of like self-help and make you feel good and that sort of thing. And so I wonder if to a certain degree, maybe that is contributing to all this because we're having a church that's growing up and becoming more and more left. And anybody that reads scripture would understand this isn't what the Bible talks about. This is not what the Bible teaches, but it's, it's like people are just taking it, you know, at face value. I mean, is it, is it, is part of the solution just like education or like pastors need to get back to preaching the word in season and out? Like practically speaking, what do you think the solution to all this is? Well, it's obvious that uh, simply uh, engaging a, a reinforcement of, of systematic theology is not getting it, because that's what the Dallas Statement guys have tried to do, and, you know, this just keeps getting, you know, pushed back in their faces. I mean, it, we do need to stick with theological training, uh, but the, the problem is some of this stuff needs to be uh, confronted and, and cut out of the body of Christ. You, you can't just uh, take vitamins for cancer, right? Um, there, there's, uh, you know, the, as holistic as our approach might want to be, you've got to get rid of the stuff. And in fact, um, that's what the, you know, the New Testament warns about over and over again. Paul was so uh, specific about dealing with the Judaizers whose, whose false works gospel uh, Leaven, the gospel, was threatening everything that was happening in the New Testament church uh, and a huge threat to the gospel. He said, I would wish that these guys would cut themselves off, these mutilators of the flesh. There has to be an intense opportunity made of what we now know and are standing at the crossroads made to rid the church of this stuff, not to uh, just play footsies with it or say, you know, it's a secondary issue 
uh, and we've got to address it in our seminaries and we've got to stop the flow of money uh, that's coming in that's bringing a lot of this corrupt stuff in it but first of all first of all we've got to pray because at this point we need a divine awakening because i think at this point it's so animated by deception that it's going to take the spirit of god to really open people's eyes and and his word afresh you know in their hearts to realize no this is not the gospel and this is not uh, going to help the people that we want to help and honestly with the advance of the lgbt agenda especially the the transgender we're looking at a culture that is being uh, abused by fake science and by politics and by just popular culture uh, mainstreaming this stuff we're going to be dealing with the refugees from the LGBT movement for decades to come, and what is the church going to have to offer them? Uh, we don't have anything outside the gospel and the hope uh, in the blood of Jesus uh, for trans- uh, transformation. And uh, you know, the, and the reality is that the big two big elements that are missing from our gospel today are faith and repentance. And and really, repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit, and then faith is imparted by the Holy Spirit. So, we need God's intervention here, and um, and it could start through this stuff being exposed in uh, you know in no uncertain terms called out. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. And you know, and one of the things that I feel like I kind of keep coming back to is when we had the Dallas statement, and we had the state which the statement on social justice. That was like the line in the sand where it's like, okay, we're going to define our terms. And then you had the whole Shepherds Conference Q&A fiasco that went down where MacArthur said that he's he's going to fight error, but he's not going to fight my friends, which meant guys like Al Mohler and Lincoln Duncan and Mark Dever and, and those kinds of guys. And then you had the whole Tom Buck thing with Sam Albury. It's like, I feel like that's all been undermining the statement and undermining our position so practically speaking, when we're looking at, okay, what do we expect from our leaders? What do we expect from our pastors? So if if we're looking at the grand scheme of things, obviously guys like Russell Moore, that's a problem. J.D. Greer is a problem. Al Mohler is a problem. Beth Moore is a problem. I mean, do we, do we expect and do, should we be kind of demanding that our pastors are separating from them? That we are saying, look, as long as you are teaching this and supporting this, we can't partner with you in ministry. Like when we draw that line in the sand, how do we practically follow through on that? Well, I think that there are enough grassroots people uh, within the Southern Baptists and even the Presbyterian Church in America and other denominations who are being uh, faithful to scripture, who've fought these battles already a generation ago uh, they're looking at them now and realizing, well, we've we've lost or 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 threatening with a threatened with the loss of of things we fought for, you know, in our own youth, and uh, some of them are just too tired to mount a fresh battle, and then too many of the younger postmodern mindset. Uh, you know, guys are are drinking the Kool Aid, so we're in crisis. But the actual answer to that would be a grassroots movement, uh, birthed and animated, you know, by the Holy Spirit to raise up a people who would basically take back their churches. Uh, whether that will ultimately mean the the denominations split, the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention splits if people leave. Uh, I do know a lot of people who are looking to 
these 11 um, overtures, which are akin to the resolutions at the PCA meetings this week in Dallas, actually, uh, that they were looking to that outcome to determine if they were going to stay in the PCA. I think everybody has to decide for themselves if they're going to stand and fight or they're going to walk away. But um, if they are going to walk away, they shouldn't walk away with uh, silent consent to what's happened. They should speak up and and start uh, calling other people out. Because bottom line, you know, when the house is on fire, if you uh, grab your kids and grab your, uh, your valuables and you run out, but you know there are other people in the house and their children and uh, their families and uh, precious lives, then you're complicit with uh, the putting those people or leaving those people in harm's way. And we're all members of the body of Christ. We can't just uh, save our own hide and then let the house burn down around everybody else. I mean, that's my conviction every day. When I get tired of blogging and researching and, <laughs> and interviewing and stuff, I'm always reminded uh, I'm I'm a Christian and I'm a friend of the bridegroom, and this is his bride, and I am sworn and promised and pledged to prepare a people who are prepared for the Lord. I can't walk away from this. None of us can, not if we love the Lord and and cling to His Word. Yeah, for sure. And and kind of as we're as we're wrapping up and as we're closing, if if you could say if you had a message for somebody who believes in social justice or one of these pastors that's, you know, enabling it or going along with all this kind of stuff. What what would be your message to them um in in what you're hoping and uh you know to kind of help them to open their eyes and and realize the problem with all of this stuff. Well, if we really want to help people who are being oppressed or feel oppressed, we have to realize that the real oppression is is sin, the bondage of sin. Uh, the best way to escape our oppressors is to be forgiven and to forgive. And the power uh, that will come from God comes through us being willing to forgive, not recount and hold accountable uh, a, a descendants of uh, you know four generations removed for past sins or to see people as complicit because they're black I mean or they're white or they're uh, Hispanic or male or uh, or 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 heterosexual uh, if if we see th- people through that lens we've made the mistake of no longer seeing them through the lens of of God or through the gospel what we realize is our greater orientation issue is that we're all born in sin and under the power of sin and the real gospel transcends all this junk and real unity is the unity of the spirit uh, in the body of christ and that's not going to be achieved by victim narratives and progressive politics as a matter of fact just the opposite is going to be achieved because we're not going to be able to help women deal with the emotional struggle of who have been abused if they can't have the healing that only the 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 word and the and the spirit of god can bring about in their heart through forgiveness and release uh and the same with the racial issue the same with uh the uh, this ssa narrative and lgbt issues uh if we start identifying as a victim we have marginalized ourselves and we have taken ourselves outside the context of a biblical narrative because in justice in God's eyes uh, would be all of us getting what we deserve and that's not what God delights in God delights in mercy 
And when he talks about us doing justly and and, and um, loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, that would be putting the gospel first and foremost, not these narratives. And I would urge anyone to look into the Frankfurt School how these things were developed in the 20s, these ideologies that drive progressivism today, and realize how antithetical they are to the gospel and to the scripture, and see the players really behind it. Look into some of this money that's coming into our uh, seminaries and into our circles and realize this thing is not gospel-driven at all. Uh, but the hope is not that we can't help these uh, you know, people who are victims, uh, but that uh, we're all victims and and the gospel has the goods to help every one of us. Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, I think that's the perfect way to, to wrap it up. And I'm I'm very thankful for you coming back on and, you know, covering all these topics. I know there's always like so much that we, that we can talk about. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so if people want to, you know, read up on some of your articles and your blogs that you've been, that you've been writing and exposing a lot of this kind of stuff, where can they go to get that kind of information? Uh, 30piecesofsilver.org, spell it out, spell out the words 30piecesofsilver.org. And, um, and I would just urge people to pray and open up, uh, you know, to, uh, whatever God is calling them to do, because you and I both know, uh, you may feel extremely feeble in your own effort, but, uh, if you just start speaking up then uh, you know, stand up in the Jordan and start calling out for repentance and God will bring you an audience and you can make a difference. You can, uh, you can be salt and light. Yeah, definitely, and then and then all, and then also the other side of it too is if you guys want to pre-order the book uh, that uh, Tom Tom is helping to write, I'm I'm involved. Several other people are involved. You can go to socialinjusticebook.com. Use the use the code Thomas. You guys can get a free audio book as well. But I'm really excited about how this is kind of all coming together, and I'm really glad Tom that you're involved because I feel like your chapter. I mean, you you know this stuff inside and out. <laughs> Well, it's not the most pleasant topic, but it's also something we're not going to be able to get away with because uh, LGBT is redefining uh, the human rights uh, discussion globally, uh, transgender in particular. So uh, people need to get up to speed on this stuff and then uh, be wary of it, not be taken in. But I appreciate your work with the book and the invitation, and I think it's going to be a very worthwhile read and very relevant to what we're dealing with. And I think the SBC with this resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality they just proved how much this book is needed <laughs> yeah uh, 100% so well again thank you so much for coming on I'm really glad we could do this and again down the road we'll have, we'll have to do it again sometime again there's, there's always stuff coming up in the church that needs to be dealt with so really appreciate you and really appreciate you coming on thanks Jeff anytime definitely thank you This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark.
You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.